Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we're going to look at verses 25 through, th- uh, through 32 this evening. The psalmist seems to be down and out as he begins this psalm. Or I should say he be- he's, he's down, but he's not out. He seems to be down, but he's not out. Now the last stanza, that is the last time we were together, in verses 17 through 24, it ended with the psalmist delighting in God's word. Look at verse 17 of Psalm 119. And the psalmist says, let me find it here again. I get, Psalm 119 is so long, I can make sure I'm in, let's see, I was in Psalm 118. Here's Psalm 119, verse 17. It says, deal bountifully, no, that's not the one I want. Verse 24, sorry for that. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. So we see that he ends delighting in God's word. Now, this one starts with the psalmist down in the dust. The the enemy attacks us the hardest when we're enjoying the blessings of God. You know, just like it said here that, you know, your testimonies, they're my delight. Lord, your word is my delight. And, and, you know, and they're my counselors. And so he's delighting here. He's having a, a good time, a good moment. And so... Uh, but we need to understand that, again, uh, the enemy attacks us the hardest when we're enjoying the blessings of God. We need to expect it. It doesn't mean we go around fearful, always looking our, over our shoulder, but we need to keep in mind that the enemy never stops. He never stops his attacks. So, you know, when things are going well and, oh, man, we're feeling good and things couldn't be better. And, man, this is a great time in my life, you know, we're, uh, you know and, and things are looking up. It's dangerous to just kick back and take off the armor. Again, it's like a soldier in a war zone. All right. There might be a lull in the battle at the moment. You know, there might be a ceasefire. But you know what? You can't just lay your armor down and your weapon and just think that, <clears throat> you know, everything is safe. All right, we have to be watchful. We can't take off the armor. Andrew Bonner said this, we must be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. And when the psalmist was down, he knew just what to do. He prayed. And if you remember this morning, that's exactly what, um, you know, uh, George Mueller had done from that excerpt from his journal. You know, his friend said he woke up one morning, it was a Christmas morning, and he was down, he was depressed, he was bummed out, and he had no idea why. And his friend told him, keep praying, keep serving God. And so he did that, and as he kept praying, as he kept serving God, he says that he came out of that depressed place, and he was rejoicing in the Lord that day. We need to know what to do when we're down, and that is to pray. Look at verse 25 now. The psalmist says, My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Here it seems that the psalmist is in trouble, and he's upset. He's upset over the bondage to earthly things that he finds his mind holding on to. It says his soul clings to the dust. Now, this word clings is translated from the King James word cleave. Now, the idea is that he feels so low that he actually seems to be joined to the dust. All right. That word cleave is the same words that's used in Genesis chapter two, verse 23, where it says when a man takes a wife, he is to cleave to her. 
It means joined to. It means to adhere to. It means to be glued upon. Now, here it's not meant in a positive way. He, he feels that, you know, that, 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 that me and the dirt are best friends. You know, I'm just so down that, it, that that's, the dirt's the only, the only thing that I, the only friend that I have because my, I, I'm in bondage to earthly things. He finds his mind holding on to earthly things. And so he's really bummed out about that. And as a result, because of that, his soul is disintegrating. It is melting from the heaviness that he's feeling because he's so down. And he's praying, Lord, he says, he's crying out to be released from the spiritual prison that he's in. Lord, please set me free. Give me some space. Give me more room. Give me the freedom that I need. Paul had these same struggles with sin. Again, he, you know, Paul was so troubled with, with what the, the struggle that he was having. You know, he was crying out to God. You know, and it's in Romans chapter 7 where, where he had this struggle, you know, with sin in verses 14 through 25. And I'm going to, you know, paraphrase it with, uh, to you from the living trans, New Living Translation. So, you know, he said that the trouble is not with the law. The, the word of God is not the problem, he's saying, because it's spiritual and it's good. He says the trouble is with me. Because I'm all too human, I'm a slave to sin. He says, I don't really understand myself because I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. He says, but if I know what, that, that, that what I'm doing is wrong, he says, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. He says, and I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, he says, I'm really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. He says, I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to be what's, when I want to do what's right, inevitably I do what's wrong. He says, I love God's word with all of my heart. But there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. And you see, that's what he's saying here to the psalmist, that he's struggling with these things that seem to occupy his mind, these earthly things. Paul says, I've discovered this principle of life that when I do what's right, I inevitably want to do what's right. I inevitably do what's wrong. I love God's word with all my heart. This power, he says, makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. He says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Notice who will free me, not what, but who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death. He says, thank God, the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So you see, he says, this is how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. This appears to be exactly what the psalmist is saying here in verse 25. But in our text tonight, we're going to see the wonderful power and resulting effect that God's word has on a heart. That Here's the key, though, that grieves over its sin, that grieves over its tendencies to go downhill. And is, they're filled with sadness because of its distressing surroundings. You see, it will desensitize you. Sin will desensitize you. It seems that the word of God stirs up prayer in the psalmist in verses 25 through 29 here. And then it confirms his choice as to what to do in verse 30. And it inspires a renewed determination in verse 32. 
It's in all tribulation, whether of body or mind, God's word is the surest source of help. The tendency in this world today is to be pulled downward. This world pulls us down. Everything pulls us down. I mean, just one example, television is an amazing device. They're getting bigger and better and clearer, and they're, they're just fun to watch. And the device could be used for God's glory. But you know what? They end up just pulling us down. Cell phones, computers, the same thing. They could be a wonderful instrument for the glory of God, but you know what? They seem to just pull us down. Everything is programmed that way in the world. We just seem to automatically go in that downward direction. And it's so easy. Not only will our body fall downward, but our soul is pulled downward in the world. So how do we overcome it? How do we overcome this downward trend? This is another reason for reading and studying the Bible. That's why a few weeks ago, before we started Psalm 119, I asked, you know, uh, the, the congregation to, to, to make a commitment to Sunday night while we're going through Psalm 119. That they can see the beauty of God's word, the purpose of God's word, the magnificence of God's word. If people will stay in the word of God, it will keep them out of a lot of sin. It will keep them out of a lot of trouble and a lot of heartache. We see in Psalm 1911, uh, these words, and again, New Living Translation, it says, they, speaking of the laws of God or the word of God, they are a warning to your servant and a great reward for those who obey them. You see, the word of God is a warning to us and it's a reward. It's a warning about things that will get us in trouble, but it's a great reward for those who obey the word of God. So we can't ever blame God for, you know, any problems that we get into because God's word gives us the warning. Hey, don't do that. It will keep us out of a lot of trouble. And then we will receive reward for obeying the word of God. The word of God will also revive us. It will lift us up. And I remember one day, Pastor Roll grabbed a Bible that I had. We were at a, a prayer meeting and my Bible was on the table. He grabbed it and he wrote something in it. And this is what he wrote. He said, sin will keep you from this book but this book will keep you from sin. And how right on he was. You see, the word of God will revitalize you. It will renew you. It will revive you, refresh you, reinforce you, reawaken you. It will reconcile you. It will resuscitate us. And man, let's face it. There's a lot of people that need resuscitation. And that's exactly what the word of God does. It breathes into us new life. It awakens us. It makes us alive. Verse 26. He goes on to say, I have declared my ways and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. So the psalmist says, okay, I've declared my ways. In other words, he says, I've told you my plans, Lord. Honest confession is good for our soul. Nothing brings more relief and more life to a man or a woman than honestly admitting the evil that's caused the sorrow and the laziness in his or her life. Now, David tells his own story and he honestly admits, he said, what a fool I've been, you know, when I was trying to hide my sins from God for almost a year. The Lord chastened David for almost a year and made him miserable until he stopped lying. And until he humbled himself before God and he confessed his sins to God. Chasten isn't a, a judge punishing a criminal. 
It's a loving father dealing with his disobedient children to bring them willingly to the place of surrender. And according to Hebrews 12, 1 through 13, God's chasing his proof that he loves us and that we are genuinely his children. Listen to what David said in Psalm 32, 3 and 4. He said, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand, God's hand was heavy upon me. My my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. David tells his own story and he honestly admits, what a fool I was for trying to hide my sin for almost a year. What happened to David during those difficult months? First of all, he became a physical wreck. He was probably about 50 years old when he disobeyed the Lord, when he had this great sin with Bathsheba. But he began to feel and look like a sick old man. He was usually strong. He was usually ready for action. But now his body was in constant pain, according to Psalm 51.8. And he was groaning because of that pain. He says, the hand of God was heavy upon me. And instead of David feeling fresh and full of vigor, he was dried up like a plant. It had no water. Whatever David was going through, whatever the physical problem was, he was miserable. Why? Because he had a guilty conscience. He had a worried mind and a sick body. You know, it's like, when will I be found out? When are they going to find out what I've done? But you know what? It was worth the pain. Why? Because you see, the experience brought David back to the Lord. The psalmist's confession here proves that the man knows his own condition, knows his own heart, and he's no longer blinded by pride. Our confessions aren't so that God will know what our sins are. You know, it's not that God doesn't know. He already knows what our sins are, but it's to make us know them ourselves. He knows what's in man. John 2.25 tells us that. God knows what's in man. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 tells us that our heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. Our heart lies to it, to us. It deceives us. And God makes it very clear why we sin. It's a matter of the heart. That's why Solomon said, guard your heart above all things. And as I've said many times, and I hope it sticks in our minds, is. Warren Wiersbe said, the heart of the problem is the problem with the heart. Our hearts, have, our hearts have been bent towards sin from the moment we were born. Genesis 8, 21, the word says, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's easy to fall into the routine of forgetting and forsaking God. But you see, we can still choose whether or not we're going to continue in sin. We can give in to a specific temptation or we can ask God to help us resist that temptation when it comes. But, you know, there's a key to resisting the devil. Many times, you know, I've heard somebody say, you know, when they're when they're having problems with the enemy and the enemy is getting the best of them. I hear somebody else say, well, no, the Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you. But that's not the first part of the verse. (laughs) James 4, 7 through 10 says, Therefore submit to God, then resist the devil and he will flee from you. You see, if I'm submitting to God and to God's word and to God's commands, then I can resist the devil. Then he will flee from me. He'll come back. 
But you know, God will prevail. But I have to submit to the ways of God. I have to submit to God's word. Then I resist the devil and he'll flee. And then James goes on to say, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Paul said, cleanse, or James said, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Notice, the divided heart. We can't have a divided heart in serving God. He said, lament and mourn and weep for our sins. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You see, humility cures worldliness. And then the psalmist goes on to say in verse 26, and you answered me. I've declared my ways and and you answered. Lord, I've told you my plans and you answered me. God accepted his confession. It wasn't a lost cause. God had drawn near to him because of it. You see, forgiveness comes after repentant confession. And the psalmist felt that he received the Lord's forgiveness. It's God's way of forgiving our sinful way when we confess our wrongdoing from sincere hearts. As John said in 1 John 1, 8-9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess. And then he said in verse 26, teach me your statutes. Being truly sorry for his wrongdoing and having then received total forgiveness, now he's concerned about not sinning anymore. And that's why he begs God to teach him obedience. The psalmist wasn't willing to sin through ignorance. He wanted to know the mind of God by being taught the word of God by the best of teachers. The psalmist longed after holiness. Men and women who are forgiven always have a strong desire to be sanctified. When God forgives our sins, we're even more fearful of sinning. We don't want to sin again. Mercy that forgives us and pardons us creates a desire in us for God's grace to stop us from sinning. When we can boldly ask for even more grace, we can ask, I'm sorry, we can boldly ask for even more grace even after God has given us a bunch of grace. Even though he's washed away our past sins, he won't refuse that grace that's needed to preserve us from present and future defilement. This cry for teaching by the psalmist is seen again and again in this psalm. In verse 12, after seeing who God is and here after seeing who self is, everything, every experience should lead us to plead with God, teach me your statutes or your word. Verse 27, He says, make me understand the way of your precepts, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. Lord, make me understand the way of your precepts. In other words, Lord, give me a deeper understanding into the practical meaning of your word. He's saying, Lord, let me me get a clear idea of the nature and the meaning of your word. Blind obedience doesn't get much praise. You see, God would want us to follow him with our eyes open. To obey the letter of the law, that is outwardly, is all that the uninformed, the unenlightened can hope for. If we want to keep God's precepts in their spirit, in other words, what God intended them to be, we have to come to an understanding of them. We have to understand them. And that can't be gained anywhere else but at the Lord's feet. 
God wants us to know why we should follow his law. Not just, hey, just do it because I said so. He wants us to know why we should follow his word. So our understanding needs insight and it needs direction. You know, he's the one who made our understanding. So he also has to make us understand. And that's why the psalmist says, Lord, teach me your statutes and make me understand. We need to be taught so that we understand what we learn. Notice again that the psalmist, he said, now teach me your statutes. Notice that the psalmist isn't excited about understanding the prophecies but the precepts. And he's concerned, uh, not, uh, uh, he, and he's not concerned about the fine points, that is the technical things, you know, the, the, the obscure, that which is hard to understand, those things of the law. But he wants to know, he wants to understand the ordinary, everyday rules of God's word, which are described again as the way of your precepts. This is what's going to help us in our time of need. You know, a lot of people get all excited and all, you know, all, all focused on prophecies. They just, they just want to know what the prophecies are. Who, you know, when's Jesus coming? Who's the Antichrist going to be? What, you know, just prophetical things. Or they, they're, they're, they're all caught up in spiritual experiences and spiritual phenomena. They get all caught up in speculation. We need to be balanced Christians. We need to know Genesis from Revelation. Paul said, I, I, I haven't shunned to give you the whole gospel. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. The psalm says, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. It's a waste of time talking about what we don't understand. Let's talk about the things that we do understand. And a lot of people, they also get you know, hung up on what they don't understand. When, you know what, there's so much that we do understand. And that's what we need to focus on, what we do understand. The psalmist said in Psalm 131.1, I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. Besides, God is so infinitely wise we can't grasp the wisdom of God. We can't grasp the mind of God in, in, in so many things. When our heart has been open to understand, we should pass on what we've learned to those around us. And we can hope to be taught ourselves when we teach the way of the Lord to other people. He said also, your wonderful works. Make me understand the way of your precepts so I shall meditate on your wonderful works. But even the clearest understanding doesn't keep us from wondering about the ways and the works of God. And the fact is that the more we know of God's doings, the more we admire them. And the more excited we are to tell other people about him. Half of the things that we wonder about in the world is just the plain lack of knowledge. Because we don't know. But holy wonder, that is, I know but I'm in awe of what I know is the beginning of understanding. When a man or a woman understands the ways of God, the ways of his word, they never talk about their own works. They start to praise the perfect works of the Lord. Now the word meditate here in verse 27 or, or muse or talk, they're very close in meaning. And it makes sense that they should be because only foolish people will talk without thinking. Solomon said in Proverbs 15, 28, the heart of the righteous studies to answer. 
And if we read verse 27 this way, we take it to mean that according to how much the psalmist understood of the word of God, he met, he'd meditate on it even more. Which is usually what happens. Because those who don't think about God's word don't care about or care to know the inner meaning of the scriptures. While those who know the word of God best are the men and women who strive to know them even more. And as a result, they give themselves to meditating upon God's word. Look at, look at verse 19. Let's go back to verse 19. And look, look what the psalmist said. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. We see how this idea in verse 19 is similar to this here in verse 27. In verse 19, he was a stranger in the earth. And here he prays to know God's way. He also prayed that the word might not be hid from him. And here, though, he promises that he won't hide it from others. Verse 28. He says, my soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. The psalmist says that his soul melts from heaviness. That is, it's weary. It's it's weary with sorrow. Now, there are different things that a person can feel sorrow for. For example, you know, we can feel sorrow for those who are perishing. We can feel sorrow for our own sins. We can feel sorrow for the loss of somebody who's close to us, either by death or, 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 or acquaintance. But here the psalmist seems to be talking about his own sorrow because of his humiliating condition. Because he's been rejected, because he's been slandered and humiliated by other people. And and we've probably all felt that way at some time or another. We just feel really down. But you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, with feeling down. It's a natural response to trials. Like the one that the psalmist has been describing here. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. So what happens? It's not wrong to feel bad or to feel down when we're you know, going through, through troubles. But what is wrong is letting these feelings turn us toward ourselves. Focusing on the trial and keeping us down. That is self-pity. Oh, woe is me. Or worse than that, to turn away from God. Instead of the psalmist looking at himself and pitying himself, he renews his determination to hold fast to the promises of God. And that's what we need to do when we go through trials and tribulations. We need to hold fast to the promises of God. Our minds can get so cluttered with other people's advice for our lives and what to do. And we always have people telling us what to do. But the thing is, they never come with us to help us follow their advice. But you know what God does? He's always with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. That's the uniqueness of our Bible. God not only gives us the rules and the guidelines, but he even comes with us personally every single day to strengthen us so that we can live according to his word. All we have to do is invite him. And respond to his direction. Verse 29. The psalmist says, Remove from me the way of lying and grant me your law graciously. The first verse says, 
in the New Living Translation, keep me from lying to myself from deceitful things. Here the psalmist is asking the Lord to keep him from sin, which is what he's been thinking about all along. Now, how does he do that? By the grace of God. But more specifically, it's by the grace of God exercising itself through the written word. Here's the whole idea behind this. If we're to keep from sin, if we're to be kept from sin, it has to be by the grace of God exercised through the teaching of his word. Remember verse 9? Jump up, go back to verse 9. Notice what it says. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. The psalmist just didn't want to just be kept away from sin. But, he, but, but have it kept from him. All right? He, again, he didn't just want to be kept from that way of sin, but to have it kept. He, he can't stand having sin near him. He wanted sin taken away, taken out of his sight. The psalmist wanted to be right and he wanted to be upright. He wanted to be true and he wanted to be in the truth. But he was afraid and we should be too. He was afraid that even the smallest amount of what was not true, the smallest amount of non-truth, he was afraid it would cling to him unless the Lord took it away. So he sincerely is crying out to God to take away, Lord, the smallest sin, the least bit of non-truth. Take it away from me. Verse 30. I have chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. We have to choose the right way. Just as much as the psalmist hated the way of lying, he loved and he chose the way of truth. A man has to choose between the one or the other because there's no neutral ground. We just don't stumble upon the right path by chance. If we're going to live for God by learning and obeying His Word, the Bible, we have to choose to do it. And we have to apply ourselves consistently to the work of doing it. We must choose it. We must continue to choose it. Or else it won't be long before we wander from it. And it doesn't take much to wonder. Those that God has chosen in due time choose His way. There's a doctrinal way of truth that we have to choose. In other words, God's Word, there's a doctrinal way of truth that we have to choose. We have to reject every man-made doctrine. And there's a ceremonial way of truth that we should follow. Hating all the forms that apostate churches have invented. And there's a practical way of truth. The way of holiness. That we have to hold fast to no matter how tempted we might be to give up. We need to make our choice. And you know what? We can't, we can't reverse on it. Let it be irreversible. May we never turn back from following after the Lord. And we need to tell everybody who tries to lure us away from God, look, I have made my choice. I have chosen the Lord and I will not turn away. Lord, by your grace, lead us with a sincere, heartfelt, free will to choose to do your will. And then the psalmist shows us the character of his choice when he says, notice in verse 30, I have chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. 
I have chosen to be faithful, Lord. I have determined to live by your regulations. Verse 31. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. Now we have to notice he says, I cling to your testimonies. Now we have to hold fast to God's word. In verse 25, the psalmist said he was clinging to the dust. He was joined to the dust because he was so humiliated. But here's where we find him now clinging or cleaving or joined to or glued to God's word. And if we would only do the same thing and we would be greatly committed to God's word as the result of of being greatly humiliated, we would be holding fast to God's statutes. This was his comfort. And by his faith, he stuck to it. His love and his obedience held on to it. His heart and his mind stayed meditating upon the word of God. The choice that that the psalmist made was so determined, it was so absolute and so planned out that he stuck to it for life. For his whole life. And he couldn't be removed from it by the criticism of those who despised the way of God. Now, what do we gain by not listening to the word? Nothing of any value, that is for sure. What would the psalmist have lost if he had stopped cleaving to the divine word? Everything that was important and everything that mattered. And it's such a blessing when I look back at the past and I see how the grace of God helped me to keep going during those very difficult times. And what blessing to expect God's grace to continue just as much and just as faithfully in the future. Our God, who has made it possible for us to stick to him, he will surely stick to us. As James said, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Now, we might be struck down. We might be hard pressed on every side, like Paul said. We might be perplexed, persecuted. But during those times in our humiliation, we need to hold fast. We need to cling to, hold on to the word of God. We have nothing else. And in those times of severe distress, there's nothing to cling on to but God in his word. It was said of Moses that Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness learning to be nobody so that he could spend the next 40 years proving God to be somebody. Verse 32. He says, I will run the course of your commandments for you shall enlarge my heart. Now by running is meant cheerful, ready, and zealous observance of God's precepts. It's not, I will go, or I will walk, but I will run. And those who want to finish this journey have to run according to God's commandments, His Word. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.5, he said, If anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You want the heavenly crown? You better run this race according to the word of God. Plain and simple. There's no other way to, re- to receive the crown of heaven. 
It's only as we follow God's way through God's word. The psalmist here, it speaks of a speedy or, or, or a ready uh, obedience without delay. Running. We have to start with God immediately. There are many who should already be at the finish line, Paul said many times. Instead, they barely have gotten out of the starting blocks. They, started, they barely started to move out. He said, remember, some of you should already be teachers. <laughs> but you're not. I have to still be, I'm still feeding you milk. And the running here, it speaks of earnestness. Sincerity. When a man's heart is set on something, you meant you can't do it soon enough. And this running, when we're passionate and dead set and sincere on enjoying Christ and God in Christ through the way of obedience, that's what he's talking about. And it says the heart freely offers itself to God. This running is the result of God calling us. And when the Lord speaks, we run. When God calls us, there's a speedy, sincere movement in our heart. And this running, which is the result of his calling, it's necessary. Why? Because if we move slowly, we're soon to be overcome by difficulty and temptation. When a man or a woman makes up their mind to do something, even though they're hindered and pushed around, they take it patiently. We go on and we can't stay. We can't stick around to talk about the problem. We have our eyes on the goal, the prize, which is God. Now, something that's moving slow can be easily stopped. But something that's bearing down hard and fast it is hard to stop. That's why we need to run the race fast and hard so that we run right through the enemy's pitfalls. You see, it's the same with men and women as they run. They're not tired in the service of God. And last of all, the prize calls for running. We are to run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? He said, run in such a way that you may obtain it. Have any of you ever run a race where you did not want to win? Oh, I'm just running. I'm just going to run this race. I don't care if I win. You know, but... That's kind of what Paul, hey, you know, we're, we're running. He said, run like you want to win it. Run in such a way that you obtain the crown. Fast and hard, determined. Verse 25 started with the psalmist lying in the dust. But notice how it ends. He's running. He's running vigorously and he's running freely in God's way. So in closing, how do you see your Christian life? Do you see it as a race to be won? Or do you think of it as just a, a casual stroll? Following your Lord at a distance. Oh, don't worry, Lord, I'll catch up. Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnared us, ensnared us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And at the end of verse 32, he says, For you, for you shall enlarge my heart. The enlargement of the heart includes the enlightening of the understanding. In other words, we're given a clearer light so that we can understand spiritual things in a more spiritual way. To see the huge difference between the worthless things that the world goes after and the true lasting things that's in the way of God's word. It's to know the false pleasures of sin and their falsehood that, you know, Satan puts in fancy wrappings and it's to not be attracted by it and to have a better understanding of God, his excellency and his greatness and his goodness and how worthy he is to be obeyed and to be served. This is the great honor and happiness of of a person's soul. All other claims, all other advertising are lowly and poor compared to the word of God. Growth Growth is to see the purity and the beauty of God's word. How just and how reasonable it is. How pleasant and how pleasing it is. And as John said, his commandments are not burdensome, but a delight. Father, thank you so much for, again, your word, Lord, and the beauty of the psalmist. And the words that he's written and left to us, Lord. We thank you so much. Father, that you loved us, that you love us so much. That God, you've left us this magnificent book, Lord, this timeless book. This book, God, that is so full of treasures, Lord. So full of of directions for life, God. Wisdom for living. Father, the way to salvation. Father, we thank you so much. We could never, never ever in words really explain in detail how much we love your word, how great is your word, how great you are, God. Father, we pray that always the teaching of your word would bring us to an understanding of, of who you are, God. And that it would draw us close. It would draw us in, God. That it would open our eyes and our ears and our heart to who you are and how much you love us. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. Our prayer is that God's word tonight through his spirit has touched your heart. And you recognize, I need Jesus Christ. I need him. I want him as my Lord and my Savior. I want to make him mine. I want to make him personal. I don't want to just know about him. I want to know him. As the psalmist said, the Lord is my shepherd. The worship team's going to lead us in a time of worship. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you get up out of your seat. 
you make your way towards the steps up front and I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.